Good to go. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, apologies that, uh, the, well, this is like, I guess, third time. The first time the recording didn't work. Second time we yeah, thought we'd uh, just record it. And yeah, so yeah. third time's lucky. Yes, I, I decided to record all my interviews now on Skype because it's accessible with voiceover and I can just do it and upload it to the site and it'd be so much easier. They're supposed to be working on the share recording with friends feature. I guess a lot of people are complaining about it. Right. So they're working they're working on it. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll just upload. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Okay. But but I actually um, have, uh, someone actually did give me a question for you, so I will be asking you that question later on in the interview. Okay. Um, they, because I guess they weren't satisfied with every other polyglot's explanation on the question, so I said, okay. <laughs> I'll ask them. I'll do my best. Okay. Um, so, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And taking the time to um, for me to interview you and my 8.6K listeners. Um, I and everybody else would love to know, how did you get started? Like, I mean, evidently with your whole journey of, of, of wanting to work with languages and, 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 you know, was there someone that influenced you? You know, well, well. I think it's out there in interviews that have been out. I wouldn't call it a, a, a start. Um, it's just the way life was. So my grandfather uh, on my mum's side, um, so he's, he's an Australian, a white Australian, but he spoke um, about 11 languages. He spoke fluent Chinese, Japanese, uh, Hebrew, Russian, German, French, Italian, uh, Latin. And he was a... a communications radio guy during the Second World War. And he loved language. And so when I was a kid, everything was just a game. And, um, you know, we'd sit there at a shortwave radio and tune into um, languages that sometimes he didn't even know. And we'd sort of play around to try and figure out the language and what they're saying. And, you know, we went through his books and he'd teach me. Sometimes we'd be speaking Chinese in an Italian accent. And it wasn't teaching language as such, but it was just everything about language and language learning was a byproduct of his way of communicating with me, I guess. So, um, yeah, and I just, I've mentioned in that when I did a, a, a TED talk before too, but language for me, it was a lot of things like it was Morse code too, it was the Rubik's Cube too, it was programming computers. We used to sit there and bounce decimal, uh, a, a binary hex and decimal numbers off of each other. And um, the like on the Commodore 64, I think it was a Pope uh, 53280,1, that had turned the screen black. And, you know, but everything was about numbers, communication, computer languages, human languages, anything to do with creating meanings with tools. Language just happens to be um, one of the things that stands out most when you're with other human beings. It's the most notable thing. But uh, I think his, just his way, the way we interacted with each other, 
Um, it even went much further than language. That's awesome because I know a lot of people who they grew up in monolingual families. Just I did. I grew up in a monolingual family. And all they spoke was English. So, I mean, I wasn't introduced to language until I was about five with American Sign Language. And then right. subsequently after that, it wasn't until I was in college as an adult I learned Spanish. You know, but that was mainly because I needed it for a degree requirement and there were no other languages offered. So that was right. the only language I had to take. But aside from that, I mean, I really didn't get into languages like heavily until four years ago when I decided I'm going to learn Russian. You know, so okay. it for me, it it's. I've always wanted to learn more languages. I just never really had the opportunity you know, I didn't know how much information was out there. And there's a lot of people that feel the same exact way. Like they don't know, you know, what's really out there. I mean, now the technology's evolved with the right. internet and different apps and you can learn through books and games, you know, but there are still people out there that believe I need to go to a class. I need, you know, some type of grammatical rote memory structure. Mm. And then they come out four years later not being able to speak because it was never enforced in the beginning. Yeah, it's and, and that's weird. I, I know you had uh, Stephen Krashen on. Uh, yes. it's, it's an honor to be <laughs> in his shadow uh, here in, the, in, in this uh, podcast, but I, I very much admire Stephen uh, Krashen's work. But um, for me, it's it, it, it's a, it was a couple of things for me. Language is just a puzzle, and I love puzzles and solving right. things. So that part. So I know lots of people, for example, say no, you shouldn't sit there and study grammar books. And um, I would say, yeah, to actually get the language into your muscles, uh, you need to actually be using the language and doing it. But for me, grammar books are like heaven. You know, I I I. I devoured that I was just going through actually a, a grammar book in Russian and uh, and another one in Vietnamese I've got sitting here right next to me um, so while they say that you know you shouldn't go there and just learn your grammar and all the rest of it I, I got to admit that um, I get a buzz going through those things but then um, when it comes to practical use of the language uh, I'll just have those things running in the background and get hit the ground and, and use the language on the ground right I mean, and actually, it's kind of funny you say that because when I started watching your videos on YouTube, I was like, I like his approach. It's cool. He's on the street and he's using the language. Like, he's picking up the language from the street, like from people as well, not just from a book. And you don't really see that. I mean, you see, okay, I want to use a teacher self or Aussie Mill or a Pimsler or a Michelle Thomas or something. And that's great to have a foundation, but like if you're in the environment where the language is spoken or, you know, there's somebody that speaks it, that's even better because you're learning from real life contact. You know? Yeah, I think I think for, for me, maybe it's because of the foundation that my grandfather had set down. But um, so I had a I had a grounding in um, kanji and like Chinese. Japanese mm -hmm. characters, hiragana, katakana too, from Japanese. Mm -hmm. but my Japanese isn't one of the languages that I'd call fluent, but I can I can get behind it and I can read most of a newspaper. 
um, in Japanese, but I wouldn't speak it. I get caught up on the kunyomi. But I had a grounding in, in Chinese. Uh, I had a grounding in, like, I guess, Romance languages to Italian. And mm -hmm. um, then later on with my Danish and Scandinavian and English, of course, Germanic languages. Um, and then through my dad, my dad's Fijian Indian, so um, they speak Hindi. So having that Hindi and then Sanskrit base, I guess, again, it just becomes another puzzle. And so right. any, for, and I know some people are out there and saying, no, you should stick to one system then and stick to it until you get success with it and this and that. But for me, man, every single, I try, my, my philosophy is, you create an environment around you that teaches you the language right. that that includes every single resource that I can get my hands on every book. So any PIMS or any PIMS or session, any online offline resource, I will get it. There are some great ones. There are some crappy ones, but even the crappy ones can be useful because once you start getting into it, you realize why they're crappy and they become memory pegs to, <laughs> to reinforce the correct language. So for yeah, me, yeah. Every, mm -hmm. anything is a good teacher. That's interesting you say that because yesterday, as a prime example, I, because I'm learning Finnish. Right. Moment, well, I'm learning Finnish and Icelandic at the same time. But oh. I like Harry Potter. So... I have voiceover on my Apple TV, so I'm watching Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, and I put the finished subtitles on and had voiceover read it to me as I'm watching it because it's audio described in English. So, you know, when they start speaking, I get the words in Finnish. And I did this even with coming to America, and I enjoyed it so much because, okay, I might have not had the actual audio track in the actual... Yeah. You know, but I had something to go off of. No, and that's and, that's actually an awesome resource. Yeah. To and, use like that. Yeah. I mean, because like every language I want to learn just about you, they have the audio track for. Right. And so I'm like, I can just watch this over and over again, but in a different language. I mean, they didn't have they didn't have Greek and they didn't have Hindi and they didn't have Irish or Swahili. But they had right. Thai and Turkish and Finnish and French and Arabic and Cantonese. So I was happy with that at least. And yeah. I mean, they had the audio tracks, but it was mostly French, Spanish, and English. And I was like, well, I know Spanish. And I, you know, okay, French, I can put it in French and listen to my heart is content. But for me, it, it was like, oh, well, this is awesome, you know, because now, with technology being as advanced it is, you know, for blind people everywhere and people who have low vision, it you can have the subtitles read to you. You can hook up your displays if you have a Braille display and you can put it in computer Braille, which is eight cell Braille, and you can actually read on the uh, iOS device, whether it's your phone or your tablet or your Mac. And right. every language that is supported by iOS I, my Braille display can actually read it. You know, like it comes up in that particular Braille code. Now, mind you, I don't know every Braille code there is. I mean, there's 200 of them. I don't know them all. I don't plan on knowing them all. But the fact that if I want to read Harry Potter and finish, I can hook it up to my phone or tablet, and I can read the book and finish Braille on my display. You know, 
that's amazing. Right. And I mean, to me, it's, I, I was so happy to find that out this week. I was like, oh, this is so awesome because my display is a 40 cell display. So it's like half of the, half of a print page. So a print is eight by 11. You cut that in half. That's two pages of Braille. So for every print page, it's two pages in Braille. Uh, what you, so what much... you just said, I think, I think that's an example, a real example where technology has really uh, changed the game for um, hearing impaired or visually impaired people um, and opened opportunities that wouldn't have been there before. I have another side, like I personally, I love tech. I code, I've coded ever since I was a kid and anything with tech I'll get in and I'll build my own tools um, right. to teach me and, and, and you know, just for me. Like, you know, but it's the building of the tool that teaches me. Right. Often it's not just the, it's not the usage of the tool so much as actually building it together and putting it in, in that um, I'm dissecting language, I'm putting data, I'm seeing samples and it's that part of it that teaches me. Um, even though I love tech, honestly, the old school ways of learning language um, for me are still the most effective and the most the, one, the, the ones that I hold the most affection for. So actual real books for me, and you know, getting the smell of books and seeing this. Oh, I still love books, even though I can't on. read them anymore. Yeah, no, and that, that's what I'm saying. So you, in your case, um, for hearing pad, sure, that's that's awesome. And you can actually access stuff that you'd never have access to before. Um, and I, while I use tech, I would say that the majority of my real, real language learning actually comes from old school sources. It's right. um, going out, meeting people on the street. You know, I guess you call it human, human intelligence. Right. You know, go in. Right. You know, People, you get them and you learn from them, you observe them, you see the way they breathe, the way they move, them, move their mouth. You try and elicit how they would uh, respond in a given situation and then you replicate it. Um, and then I go back and I check against books to see whether what I learned in the books is actually the same as what I observed in the, you know, in the field. Um, that to me is the, it, it, it's, it's where I get most of my language learning from. Yeah, there are some amazing tools out there and they can help. But right. um, for me, in the end, I got to be out there and I got to have something in my hand. Right. I mean, because I was going to ask, well, I was going to say this, actually. Um, my whole goal for Ty, and this is how crazy this was, I wanted to be able to have a small conversation and I wanted to be able to order food and Thai. Right. So I went to a Thai restaurant over a week and a half ago with a friend of mine. I mean, her drive me to a Thai restaurant and as I'm driving, and she's driving <laughs> and I'm in the passenger seat. I right. sit there and I'm listening to how to order food on Thai so I can go in there and I learned all the vocabulary on how to order food in Thai and I went up in there and start speaking Thai to this chick who is from Hollywood, California because I used to live there when I went to film school. And so we had a connection right there and she was like, your Thai is really good. And I'm like, oh, well, thank you. And I ordered me some Singapore noodles because I had never had it before and some Thai right. tea. And people couldn't believe that I was speaking Thai. Oh, that's I, great. And I got a, a thrill out of that. And I tell my listeners and I tell my students, I said, well, you know, try small goals. Something simple like 
I want to go and order a coffee in Italian, or I want to go and go shopping in a Chinese supermarket and order something or buy something and pay for it, you know, right. in, in, that, can in I, that language. Can I, can I go um, a step further in that? And I, uh, as far as what you said, you say you, you got a buzz from it. And that's what another thing that drives me to the languages is those little buzzes that you get and you want to get more and more and more. And, and so you have to, the only way to get more is to get better at the language. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is ordering things, um, and uh, whether it's in McDonald's or ordering coffee or or dinner, um, or or over here, for example, people say, if they don't speak uh, Thai very well, they say, oh, and they speak taxi Thai, but actually taxi Thai, the real Thai that we would use in a taxi is Mm -hmm. actually quite advanced. And so when people say taxi tie, it's them trying to force what they would say and then translating with whatever little vocabulary they have um, to be able to communicate with a taxi driver, for example, or order mm-hmm. a meal. That's one thing. But I would, the way I approach things like that is I would sit in the restaurant or say I would go up to a McDonald's counter and observe people ordering for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And then I would go in and try and imitate then or and, and, and use those puzzles and, and replace things and put them into the way that the native speakers were using when they were ordering. Um, that's the, same in, the same in taxis. There's a beautiful thing about taxis in that because you're using the same kind of language all the time, you know, and having to go and stop over there and, you know, Make sure that you get to the left lane before you go there, and you're always usually going a similar route. Um, first of all, you listen, and then you put those things. And the beautiful thing about a taxi, it's like Groundhog Day, because you're not probably ever going to see that taxi driver again. So you can right. use almost the exact same conversation and hone it every time. Um, and if you want, you can even record it and then take your conversation and give it to a native speaker to listen to and then say okay how would you have said it differently so you can actually take ordering a meal or taking a taxi to a whole new level it's not just you trying to use whatever tools you have in your belt to force a meaning that you're going to try and pull together but then you can take that back and hone it into something that's very close to native speaker you know that's interesting you say that because like here in akron where i live at because um, it's like about 50 minutes away from Cleveland, where I was born and raised. Um, on the north side of Africa, we have, I call it the international community, because everybody and their mother is over there. Right. Everybody from Asia, you name the place, they're there. People from Indonesia, people from Nepal, people from Burma, people from Yemen, people. It's ridiculous. Right. And when I had the opportunity to volunteer for a year um, helping ESL learners, a lot of them were from China. I probably had one person from Taiwan, somebody from Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. But we had mostly people from China, so we had to split them up <laughs> in the room because we didn't want them speaking Chinese to each other because they were there for the English aspect of it. But I learned so much about their culture. And so much about their work ethic when it came down to learning stuff, you know, because they were textbook oriented. 
you know, they wanted the textbook. They wanted, and I said, well, you're going to learn, but you need to apply it to real world scenarios. So when you go outside, you have to be able to speak. You have to be able to write down what you want or ask for directions. So we did a scavenger hunt activity for the students and we split them up into groups of three. And I had three people that I was working with and we, they had to go and they had to find the location of where the, the object was on the list or the building. And they used all their senses, reading, speaking, writing, you know, listening. Mm. And then they had to come back and they had to give a little presentation afterwards. And they did very well. And But the one Chinese lady did not want to leave the classroom. And we had to literally tell her, you have to come. Right. Because she thought that everything had to be. And I was like, do you understand why people in your country are having difficulties with, with English? It's because they're not able to apply it, like activate it. When they're using it, there's only so much you can use in a textbook. You have to be able to use it in real world, you know, environment. So she wanted more vocabulary. So I said, this is what you do. Take, take your, take a pen or paper, pencil, and then you take a movie or a TV show. You do a 10 minute frame by frame, whatever the words are, you pause it. You write down the words, you look them up, you look up the definition. You put it into your own word, use it in a sentence or two, write down the grammar patterns, all that type of stuff. She came back the next week, hugged me and said, it worked. Thank you so much. And I was like, you're welcome. Do this for every little thing. She did it. Right. Because she was like, I wouldn't have thought of that. And I said, you know, I do that even though I can't read a dictionary. I look stuff up. I was like, but I'm more spaced repetition, so I do everything by audio, and then I, then I mind map it in my head, and, you know, and it was like, well, why are you so good with Asian languages? They're so hard, and I was like, no, to me, it's not difficult, because it's tonal. You know, I'm listening to the sounds intensely. This is how they say this in Thai, and this is how they have this in Thai, and this is how they have this in Cantonese, and this is how they have it in Japanese, blah, blah, blah. I was like, for right. me, it's... I, I find interesting things that I like about the languages, you know, and I home on that. And I said, if I only want to be able to speak Thai to a low intermediate level, I'll do that. If I want to speak it to an A2, I'll do that. If all I want is A1, that's fine. I'm mm. not, it, it's not, you know, if I don't go to Thailand tomorrow, I'm okay with that. I mean, there are Thai restaurants everywhere. There's Thai cinema, you know, hey. I get my tie, however I get it. And I said, it's enjoyable for me personally. So mm. I was like, you have to make it personal. Whatever it is you want out of that language, you, you, that's how you, you acquire it. If you want to make a, a meal, find the, the vocabulary on how to make it. Find the measurements on, in Thai or whatever language and, and memorize that. And then practice reading it and then try to make the meal using that vocabulary and those list of words it was like you'd be surprised how you incorporate that into your life it, it yeah no, does that's, help. that's good but you, you know what you, you, you know what though and I, I guess you're in a different situation over there because people if they're migrating um into the u.s um right. they need english for life but the reality is that when people say they 
need to learn a language. And even if they're living there, very, very few people actually really feel that they need to or want to learn a language. Right. And uh, you and, and when it comes down to it, um, and this is why you know, well, I, I never teach English. And if I'm actually going to teach language face to face, I will be very selective. It has to be someone who really wants to learn um, because the majority of people actually don't really want to learn. They will, right. they will, they, uh, and so you say in China, you know, back in China or even in Thailand, people learn, say, English to pass exams, to get, right. to, to, to get through. And, and, and just as long as you can do enough to pass the exam, that's enough. Right. Um, and, and, and very seldom does that include uh, actually practical application of the language. It's usually theoretical exams. Um, and I see it here, though, too, in Thailand and in China. Not that many people, foreigners, actually become really proficient in the language. You'll get a lot of people speaking enough to, to order food. And, right. and that, it'll, it'll plateau there for you know, 10, 20 years. And they never right. get beyond what they, what they developed in the first six months in the country. Uh, and so... You can tell people how to learn, but unless they really want to learn it, right? very few will actually follow through. Well, you know, that's how it is in the U.S. But what's so interesting about the U.S. is that you have people that are monolingual in the U.S. where if you're speaking Spanish or some other language to whoever it is you're speaking to, the first thing they want to do is jump down your throat because they think you're talking about them because they don't understand the language or they didn't take the time to learn another language. So they just automatically assume that if you're on public transportation, you're supposed to only speak English. And I said, um, it's called freedom of speech under the Constitution. You can't tell someone what they can and cannot speak. But this is, the, but this is what the mental thought process of a lot of people in this country is. And right now, since we're dealing with the whole border situation and the, my, the influx of migrants coming in, especially from Latin America, so forth and so on, it is so bad to the point where, you know, people are afraid to even speak their mother tongue. And I'm like, I'm yeah, sorry. That's interesting. I, I, every time I go to the U.S., I'm mainly in uh, New York or on, in San Francisco. Right. Uh, but I love it in New York because I can go like a whole day and not have to speak a word of English. <laughs> oh, yeah. New York, you got, you know, you got every language under the sun there and you can, you don't have to speak English at all if you don't want. But I think, I guess, if you, as you get out of the big cities like that, it becomes much more, I guess, monolingual. Oh, yes. And, but what's so interesting is now I'm starting to see that there is a nice amount of people in the U.S. that are learning languages and that want to spread the word of language learning, which is great. And I've been able to communicate with a lot of them. I mean, because, as you know, when you're an English speaker, whether you're speaking Australian English, British English, American English, Canadian English, you're... If you're in a monolingual environment and you don't really have a lot of people speaking another language, then you start to believe, oh, well, why do I really need to learn anything, to be honest? Oh, I can get by with English all over the world. And what people but you know, really you know what? There's actually truth in that. You don't need to. 
especially now with all the software and translation software, you can travel to most places on the planet and get away with English and you actually don't need the local language. Not only that, in Thailand, if you do speak Thai, living and working, say, in Thailand, it could play to your disadvantage. It's usually the poorer people that speak Thai, the poorer foreigners that speak Thai, while the um, higher-end expats don't speak a word of Thai because they've got secretaries to do stuff for them. And if you do speak the local language, it means that then you have to play by the local rules and you can't plead ignorance. And so sometimes people might get even more leverage over you. So the reality, you know, one reality is, is that you could be worse off learning a foreign language. Um, (laughs) And you could, you could, you, and, and and as, as far as living in a place like the U S or a place where, you know, it's English is, is the language spoken there. Yeah. You don't need to learn another language. It's great if you do, but then they don't need to. Um, and this is one thing that I've realized, you know, I could get out there and proselytize about, you know, the wonders of learning language and, and I love it. I live it. I breathe it. But the reality is people don't need to. It's nice if they did, but they don't need to. You know, I've found that being in the language learning community for the past four years or so, I've learned so much from everybody in the community, you know, and it's opened doors for me that I wouldn't have been able to have open otherwise if I wouldn't have been like, I want to learn this language, this language, this language. I want to get in contact with this community, even though I'm not speaking their language, so forth and so on. I mean, I've met so many people. Oh, totally. Well, every single step of my life, um, is, you know, you can trace it back to my childhood. If, if I grew up as a monoglot, my life wouldn't resemble in the slightest what it is now, even right. from childhood. So, of course, every language you learn, it opens up the world, you know, to, to millions and hundreds of millions, say in Chinese, billions of people that can have an influence on your life, um, which, which is an amazing thing. But t- talking to, to people and trying to tell them that, they say, oh, I, I, I get by, by just fine with my own language. Okay. So I'm not going to force it on you. you, know, right. um, you they, they can get away with that. But for me personally, yeah, I couldn't imagine a world where I, I didn't speak many languages. For me, it's just the way I am and it's the way I live. I mean, because when I came across your your videos on YouTube and I actually started listening to some of the stuff you were saying and I'm like, huh, this is interesting. I mean, because in regards to Thai language by itself and the culture and I'm sitting there like, wow, now that would be cool to go to Thailand. (laughs) Yeah, we Thailand for in Bangkok for what it really is. I mean, see, with me, I'm a very cultural person, so. I love learning about people's history and language and the psychology of it and from a sociological standpoint and, oh, well, how do they interact with each other? And, you know, okay, right. is the Thai food totally different from the food over in the U.S.? You know, is it much more hotter than it is over? I mean, because evidently, you know. Right. Is- but you see on YouTube now I have, um, uh, with my wife, we've got um, South by Southeast. Um, yes. I'm South 
she's the Southeast. And so she will be able to sit there and have a, a good you know, discussion on mainly culture, language comes into it and, and different things that affect life in this part of the world um, through both perspectives. Uh, which is funny because sometimes her perspective is actually maybe sometimes more Western than my perspective, but she's still, she, she's still very Thai. Um, right. and she'll, she'll just look through different lenses. And then the other ones that I do, yeah, of course, my stuff in Thai, but um, I've, uh, you've probably noticed since the beginning of the year, I've put this Wag the Dragon series together. And yes. basically my, my work over the past 20 years, I started off as a Dale Carnegie trainer like 20 years ago. And we'd go around the companies and be in Thai and then I'd do stuff in, um, like in China and Indonesia. So I'd be in Indonesia there. But basically um, business um, training, but with a human element because of the Dale Carnegie stuff. I came out and ran my own business and you realize that culture plays a huge role in whether something is going to be successful or not successful. And often I would get called in to find out what's going on on the ground in companies like Pepsi or, uh, you know, Tesco supermarkets, or you, you have like Walmart, Carport, um, mm-hmm. or, yeah, or Pfizer and pharmaceutical companies. But very often they'd have like an international policy that they have to execute locally and it would backfire on them or they'd have crazy stuff happening on the ground or with their partners, local partners. And so I would be called in to just go in. The deal is that I don't have to tell the CEO what the problem is, uh, what, what, what they say directly. I just have to find out what the general problem is and work out what the best solution is. And as long as they agree to those conditions, I'll go in. We speak the local language of whoever's on the ground and they just tell me it's all confidential and I'll try and find out. So what Wag the Dragon is, is basically 20 years of that accumulated, those experiences. Um, you've probably heard the saying, Wag the, jo- uh, wag the, um, the Dog. Right. Um, so and there was that movie with De Niro, but in, it's like the tail that wags the dog. And so what I see is many, the, many Westerners, whether it's from Europe or the America, America or from Australia, they'll come to Asia and they'll think that they're, um, this dog going to wag their little Asian tail and they're going to be successful in Asia. And they realize after not too long that they're actually <laughs> the, the tail being wagged on an enormous dragon, whether it's in China or it's in Thailand or it's in Indonesia. And many of them actually, you know, they lose a lot. They, and they have to pack up, go home, or they'll, they'll suffer a lot before they actually learn how it works. And so what the, since the beginning of the year, and it's actually going into a book too, Wag the Dragon is understanding the nature of the dragon, at least. So you can decide, you know, one, whether or not you actually want to confront it and handle it, whether you know, maybe business in this part of the world isn't right for you or your business, you know, your type of business. And then if you do do it, okay, then how do you confront it? I haven't got all the answers, but at least you, you've got things to consider or you've eyes wide open because the rules of the game in this part of the world are very different to many other countries. Right. And, and again, language, language is just a tool to access that. It's not just right. um, the language itself, but it's, it's how you access you know, the heart of the people in, in that speak the languages. So yeah, so getting back to the YouTube note, 
you'll, you'll notice on YouTube, it's uh, the South by Southeast stuff is great because Gams, my, my wife is giving her opinions from her side and right. then I can, I can, I can, they can bounce off me and vice versa. And then I also have the wag the dragon going the other way too. So for Asian, uh, in China, um, Taiwan doing business with both Southeast Asia and the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've started doing a lot of, uh, presentations and and um meetings and consultation with actually mainland uh, mainland and non-mainland chinese uh people who are actually suffering just as much trying to do business in southeast asia because they realize the game the rules of the game in china don't work here again language is the key to that i mean and i think that's totally cool because like when i was watching your videos i was like He's doing something totally different with his languages that I don't see a lot of people doing. I mean, mostly I see a lot of these polyglots. They have their companies. They're te- they're creating courses on how to learn the languages and, you know, giving, you know, information, blogs, so forth. And, and my question is to, to that. And I, and, and I am actually somebody I, I have Jay Academy. Um, and you see my Thai stuff there, I'm getting more and more Chinese stuff, and, and I've run my Cracking Thai Fundamentals program since, what, 2000? Right. I would ask, you know, okay, um, you're teaching the languages, what are you teaching it for? You know, what's, what's the pitch? Why should somebody learn a language? Um, and the reality is, for most people, if it doesn't make business sense, Unless you're just a, a linguophile, you're not going to learn a language. Um, right. And and so you need a good business argument for it. Uh, and for me personally, language teaching language that that's a way to make a living for me. I couldn't I, I could make a, a proper living if I if I just l- relied on teaching language. For me, right. there's no there's no real money in language. The money is in people, and the money is in business. And language for me is just a tool right. to access people, and it gets you in places that it gives you a, an advantage over people who didn't have the language. Or say for me, I, my face looks the way it does, um, and so um, I can interface with people from different parts of the world and have them have a reaction to the way that I look and present myself natively in their language. And then in Asia, I can also do the same. And so that gives me advantage and you use that advantage, but it's for business. Um, but if, if I just relied on teaching language as a sole way of survival, um, unless you do a killer app and you know some Google buys it or something, you know, the reality is, is that you're not going to really you know, make a fortune with it. Right, I mean, useful, and that's great, but the the majority of people are not going to do that. Right, I mean, like I'll use Ollie Richards as a prime example. He turned his love of reading into a profitable business for himself by creating stories in different languages and doing A one A two stuff, and and yeah, and that's that's great. I love Ollie, Ollie, uh, Jan and Ollie, and I've got his books too. I think they're fantastic. Oh, and yeah. he's hitting it. He's hitting a segment in the market actually that's um, uh, it could be profitable because it's something that is makes business sense. 
Right. If you're targeting individual learners, right. yeah, you, you, you won't get a lot. But if you're targeting something that companies say, yeah, I need to get my people up to this level and I'm going to use right. this. Okay. Well, that's something that's going to make you some money. Right. But yeah, targeting. With these books too. So yeah, no, all these books are great. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that there's a lot to be said, you know, selling those into companies and, and bundling the stuff that's going to sell the companies. But, um, you know, you need to be hitting HR departments because they're the ones with the budgets. They're the ones with KPIs for their people um, that they have to get this stuff doing. But if you're selling to um, just trying to sell to individual learners, and most individual learners, they do it as a hobby. They haven't got budgets to sell, to to make you rich. But, um, so you've got to hit it from a business angle. Oh, yeah, because when I interviewed him back in October of last year, I said, uh, you know, you are one smart cookie because it takes a lot to be able to create the stuff you're creating. I mean, of course, he's even said himself, I actually had to read up on all this. You know, he actually read up on how, you know, what what was good in the market as far as the different genres of stories and so forth. And so, I mean, you know, he just didn't. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's good. I, I, I love all his stuff. And uh, he's he's hitting it the right way. And maybe I, I hope I don't create enemies. But um, yeah, selling stuff to individual language learners is a tough sell. It's like, um, and, and, and the other side of it is too, for me, I, the way that I learn a language, I focus on prosody. I focus on accuracy and getting the language sounding um, as close as I can to the speakers of that language when I can. The reality is, what are the people learning a language? They don't want to learn it to that level. They don't want to do what I do to learn a language. It's not that I have a, just some gift for learning languages. I put in the hours. Right. And the reality is that people in general don't want to put in those hours. They, they're not going to be sitting there in the bathroom obsessed writing the same Chinese character a million times. Just right. so you get the right muscle memory that resembles a native speaker's muscle memory when they write this stroke. Um, right. You know, that's what I do. But right. for me, you know, it's, it's, it's an obsession for me. And so I realized a while back that um, if I, I have my stuff and it teaches, it teaches what I'm passionate about, but I accept that there's going to be a limited audience for it. There have been other, there've been other brands around that said, you know, that have asked me to go and represent their learning labels. But then I see that the way that they teach or their package that hits the mass market. And I can't stand by those systems. They're just trying to get rich quick. And right. their promises of their courses aren't fulfilled, um, but they just see it as a way to, you know, to make a lot of money. And for me, I won't compromise my philosophies on language and my passion of language right. just for that. So, yeah, for, for me, I, I keep my language sort of material as secondary stuff. It's still out there and I still produce it, but it's for people who really want to learn. Um, right. Then as business, I use the language, but um, I use it to do business. I work about you know eighty percent of my time in aerospace at the moment, right. um, which is fantastic because aerospace is huge in Asia at the moment. Um, and language gives you an edge, right? 
you know, it's funny you say that because um, so, someone had asked, well, you know, how long does it take to learn this? And I said, well, you know, I don't put time on how long it takes me to learn something. You know, when I get to whatever the goal is for me within that particular language, that's, you know, fine, but I'm not going to, oh, well, it's going to take me three years. Well, I don't know that. You know, I can't predict how long it's going to take me to do something. Um, it, they want like you wake up one day and you think, "Oh, I've arrived." Right. You know, You're still learning. I, yeah, yeah, like with my Chinese, I've spoken Chinese since I was young, but even you know, every day I'm still learning more, right. and it never, and it won't, and it won't, I won't finish learning Chinese until the day I die. Right. You know, I, I, I sit and I read books and I watch, you know news and everything in Chinese every day. And I have done so for the past you know, 30 years. Um, and I still learn. So yeah, you know, ne you're never going to get to a point where you think, Oh, I've, I'm here. Right. I mean, that's just like with my Russian, because that was the first independent language I learned by myself. And right. I, it took me two and a half, almost three years to be able to understand Tolstoy. Mm. You know, and that was one of my. Everybody's like, "Well, you're not really passionate about languages," and I was like, "Well, I am passionate about languages, but I like to read, and I get a lot of, um, you know, fun out of reading. Plus, I read War and Peace in English. I even watched the miniseries in one day, like from beginning to end. I couldn't put it down, and wow. so I said, when I finally was able to understand." Tolstoy in Russian for the first time last year, I was very happy. And I said, I arrived when I was able to have a conversation with someone that spoke no English and the only languages they knew were Russian and German. And I got them to laugh while I was speaking Russian. And they said that my Russian was really good. So wow, that's fantastic. That, that told me a lot about all the work that I, I mean, because I actually would do 18 hours a day of listening to nothing but Russian TV, news, Putin speaking. And I actually chose him as the person I wanted to learn from the most as far as his speaking was concerned because of the way he spoke you know, mm. and the words he chose. And well, my, gran my grandfather used to say, you know, for, because he, he learned Chinese back in the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, hardly any Australians spoke Chinese back then. And right. so for him, it was especially so. But, you know, he said the feeling that he had the first time that he could read a whole page of text in Chinese characters as a as a white Australian in in Australia in the 40s for him was, you know, just amazing. But to be able to do that, but it took yeah, it took him time that he was right. he was passionate about it. But, yeah, it's that whole being able to decode it is uh, is the buzz. Yeah, and I, I tell people, like, my aunt asks me all the time, why are you learning all these languages for? And my answer is because I want to. Yeah. You know, because I enjoy communicating with people. Even if it is at a basic level, I even if I got the basic level of a certain language that people think it might be difficult, I can expand on that. You know, mm. keep growing. But I was like, I'm not trying to write a paper on you know the environment and the collapse of you know the economy in china 
in Chinese. You know, I, I just want to have a simple Cantonese conversation, order food over the phone, go grocery shopping, do what I do in my, if I do it in my daily life and English, I want to be able to do the same thing in my languages. So, and and actually just on, on that point too, another reason for learning language um, is good for me. Like for many of the best language learning resources that I have for other languages are written in Chinese. And oh, wow. so, so um, you know, I have some amazing language resources for for, for Burmese and um, for Vietnamese and even like for, for Farsi and Urdu um, that are all written in Mandarin. Um, and so learning another, the, the fact that you can actually learn more through that language, it might be languages, it might be something else, but the, the things that you can learn through that new language is a huge thing. And so that's what drives me on as well. That's why I might choose a language to learn because of the the texts that then you can access through that language. Yeah, I know for me, because I studied theater and film in college, uh, cinema is a big deal to me. And now that technology's gotten better and I can have the subtitles read to me in audio and whatever language, it, as long as it's supported. All right. Um, I, I like, I'm big on India. Like, I like Indian food. I practice yoga. And I love Bollywood movies. Right. So that was my goal for learning Hindi. And I actually actually learned basic Hindi in like six days because I was that dedicated. I'm still going to expand it because I want to speak it at like an intermediate level. But I enjoy like, being able to, you know, learn more than just namaste. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Hindi is a great, and then from your Hindi then, uh, especially if you get the Devanagari script, well then that structure, well the structure goes all the way through to Southeast Asia, the Thai, Cam- Cambodian, Tibetan, you can use that, that same structure, the, the Indic Brahmic structure for the writing. But then right. from Hindi too, then you get your, you know, Sanskrit-based language. But then there's so much Farsi there too. So I highly recommend, you know, once you get uh, enough Hindi, start getting into Farsi and things as well, because um, Farsi is also a beautiful language. You know, it's so interesting because, like, I'm, uh, I gave myself this little challenge that I would learn the basics of six languages over the summer. Well, I'm at language three now. Mm. <laughs> With Finnish in, in, in Icelandic, because people said, oh, well, Icelandic is difficult. And I was like, okay, every language that somebody speaks, the first thing the native speaker said, it's difficult. And I said, well, you know, you're trying to turn off somebody from learning your language when you say something's hard. I was like, maybe the, the reason they say that the, the only language that I found people don't say that is Indonesian. They say, oh, Indonesian's easy, which I would actually say, if you want to speak Indonesian the way we really speak it on the street, it's actually hard. Um, but they, 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 it's always said that Indonesian's super easy. But yeah, I agree. Many people say, oh, our language is difficult. It's difficult usually because there are some things about it that they never actually... They, they, they use it as a native speaker and they've never actually had to think it through why it's like that. 
Right. And so because there's no direct logical reason to them, well, then it's difficult. Irregular, you know, verbs or conjugations or whatever. But for me, yeah, Icelandic. Um, I used to, because I, I speak Danish and uh, the Scandinavian uh, languages. Um, so Icelandic, I dabbled in Icelandic for a while, but I found that, you know, it's, once you've got a good grounding and you can start to see the links, it's not that hard. No, it's not. It's, it's really different. isn't. It's similar to German. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just because the, maybe, yeah, you might use a couple of different letters. You've got the and for looking looking different. But apart from that, it's it's not that different. It is amazing that it's actually retained such, you know, you look at text from hundreds of years ago and there's not that much change happened in Icelandic. But um, it's not difficult per se. It just looks okay. different to when they compare it to the other maybe um, Nordic languages. I mean, because I, I realized I tried a stab at Norwegian and Swedish last year just for shits and giggles. And I was like, uh, I'm not going to use this. Um, I tried it. Okay, I don't like it. Okay, I'm done. But what was so interesting was that while I was doing that, I was watching um, the father-in-law of Europe, uh, Christian IX of Denmark, and his whole family story in English. Right. But then one night, I'm sitting there listening to Queen Margareta II speak Danish. Now, I don't know a look of Danish, but why was it that I can understand everything that she was saying in Danish? Mm. That yeah, was you... like, I was like, oh. You know, yeah, I mean, it's good. Know. I found um, actually I loved when I was young. I spoke Danish since I was quite young. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, Danish grammar is almost just like say Shakespearean English grammar. Right. And you can sometimes do it word for word, and you know, from into the Danish, and you know, you're speaking Danish um, or Norwegian. But um, yeah, it's it, it, again, it comes back to it though. The more you learn, then the more you can put puzzles together. I love the Rubik's Cube. And so, you know, you, you start off with a few sort of formulas. And so you try and get something, the cube, into a position where you recognize then the color pattern that you can solve. And right. then the more you do it or the more um, formulas that you learn, the more algorithms that you learn to, to apply, the more patterns you recognize and the more you can bring it back to home. It's the same mm -hmm. with languages then. The more that you learn, then the more you can see the links back to home and you can bring it back home and, and jump into it. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a lot, one of my listeners asked me, well, she was trying to figure out which method would be good for her in regards to language learning. And I sent her a voicemail message and said, well, okay, I, I do my I use the immersion method with SRS, a lot of audio, because that's all I go by. But I said at the end of the day, I, you know, everyone's method is going to be different. You know, it depends if you're a visual learner, audio learner, a kinesthetic learner. You know, you're someone that likes to learn phrases and words and then just hit the street going with it. It just depends on what it is you're wanting the language for. What, what do you what do you want to use it for? You know, do you want A1, A2, B1, B2? Do you want to be able to go to school? Which if you do, that's B1 and up. You want to work in the language. You know, you want to teach it. What, what is it you want? 
you know. And so I said, personally, when you get to 82, I would start reading. I would start listening to podcasts. I would start listening to, you know, I didn't know all the news in Russian, but I, I kept listening and listening and listening, and it kept coming into my brain. Now, mind you, uh, I accidentally made a faux pas when I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone, and I was trying to say what the word for population was in uh, Russian, which is Nisanilia, not Mussolini. And for some reason, I don't know why I heard the word Mussolini. So I actually equivocated that the population, it wasn't even the word. And my friend was laughing so hard. It was like, why would we name the word population after Mussolini? Mussolini. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I'm sorry about that. You know, but we had to got a really good laugh out of it. You know, I mean, and I don't mind making fun of myself and making mistakes. And that's another thing I see. They want to learn it quickly. They don't want to take their time. They don't want to accept that they have to make mistakes in order to be able to learn. You know, I want to speak and this perfectly. There's no such thing. Even in your native tongue, you don't speak your native tongue perfectly. But for some yeah. reason, in a foreign language, they want to be able to speak perfectly, read perfectly, write perfectly, and understand perfectly. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. So you said that there was a question you had. Yes. Me. My question was, well, the person wanted to know, um, you know, is would like the immersion method or comprehensible input or, um, you know, space repetition, which one would be the better method for her to go with in regards to language learning? Because I guess she said that she listened to all these other polyglots and they just gave her vague explanations as to their own method. They never like went into full detail. So I said, I'll ask. <laughs> which one okay, do you so would- As far as uh, which method, comprehensible input. Well, I totally agree with uh, Stephen Krashen. Dr. Right. Krashen when he says, you know, you, and I actually had the opportunity to meet with him um, I think it was around 2006, 2007, um, here in Bangkok. And he gave an example of it, but you got to be able, you have to be able to understand what you're learning if you don't understand it. So, so comprehensible input isn't just one system. It's just, it's, it's a philosophy. Um, uh, space repetition, yeah, it's a tool. Right. Um, for, for me, and you know, and I, I've spoken with other polyglots, and they think, no, you have to stick to this system or whatever. But honestly, and that, that's why I wrote Cracking Thai Fundamentals for a bunch of um, embassy workers, journalists, and UN workers, and they um, from the Foreign Correspondents Club back you know, before 2000. They said, look, they've failed with other learning systems. How can they learn to hit the ground running with the language? And so basically, I put this really built this course, which is an operating system for the mind. Um, but it's not necessarily it's it's giving you skills for your mind that make language learning easier. So you know how to hear sounds, how to place sounds, and things like this. But apart from that, when it comes to me, I don't stick to any one method. I go out there, but it's it's the passion I have. I go out and I make it happen. I get I 
turn my entire environment into something that teaches me the language. Mm-hmm. And part of that, yeah, I sit there and I do space repetition, maybe. I go out and I even make my own space repetition files. I'll, I'll, I'll generate them both from the computer. I'll get native speakers to say them. I'll sit there and I'll just observe people in food court speaking and I'll watch their behavior, how they breathe, everything. And then I'll go back and copy it. I'll put my headphones in walking or even on the train. And I'll, because you've got your headphones in, you're allowed to talk to yourself because people think you're in a television conversation, a telephone conversation. And I'll just imitate things I've heard. Yeah, but, but my whole world becomes that language. And that's how I learn. Um, I, I go through systems in books and everything. So, you know, maybe some people won't agree with me, but uh, it's worked for me. Um, and, and it continues to work. I, I never, ever stop learning. I'm always learning a minimum of a few languages at a time. And right. as soon as my brain starts to get soggy, I switch gears and maybe even switch languages and come back to it. I was yeah. about to ask that question because I did that last week. Um, where I was studying Thai for an hour, I did some Icelandic for an hour, and I did some Finnish for an hour. And after I finished doing that, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and my brain felt like it was about to drop. Yeah, so just switch gears. Yeah. Um, now, I had a yeah, question. Go ahead. Okay, I experienced this myself personally on Wednesday. I was trying to say something in Finnish, and I wound up saying something in Icelandic instead. And then when I wanted to say something in Icelandic, it came out in Dutch. Yeah, that's okay. That's fantastic. At least your brain's functioning in the languages. For me, that's not an issue, as, as, as long as it's there. That's the other thing. What's happening in your brain, nobody has to know. Right. And if that happens, you know, it comes out in another language, but eventually it's going to come out in the wash. It's like these monoglots when they say, oh, no, you don't want to speak too many languages to your child when they're, when they're a baby, you know, otherwise it's going to stunt their speaking. So, no, uh, yeah, maybe the speaking might be delayed a bit, but then when they do speak, they come out as native speakers in all the languages. Right. Um, you know, so if, if, and I've, over the years, I do a lot of simultaneous interpreting Mm-hmm. Um, consecutive interpreting, but yeah, if I haven't spoken a language in a long time, maybe I'll do it and some things will come out in other languages. I remember once, maybe 20 years ago, I was interpreting um, Indonesian, uh, simultaneous interpreting, and I was telling the story of this lady on stage, and then um, she said, Waduh, pas, pas begitu, terus, and she was saying, um, I broke my nose. And so I said, Jumuk Yapata. And um, I kept using this word, Jumuk, Jumuk. Now, um, Jumuk is nose in Thai. Idu is nose in Indonesian. So somebody came and knocked on the booth and said, Look, we understand everything. Fantastic. But what the heck is a Jumuk? Now, I, I knew the word in Indonesian, but it's just maybe jamuk idung. It's kind of got a similar rhythm. Um, it didn't. It didn't mean that I was no less or better. <laughs> my ability in the language, yeah, my brain just had a, a brain fart, and it came out like that. But it's something that can be ironed out. I know what's going on in my brain, um, and it's, it's it's not just as long as 
you know, you know what's going on. That's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say personally, simultaneous language learning is an awesome thing. And for me, the more languages that I learn and I can even draw parallels, especially if the languages are kind of related, the differences right. between languages can help you memorize both of them. So you know, for, see, like uh, Porto and Puerto, okay, we've got the O and UE, or even uh, uh, il uh, tavolo and la mesa. And so the fact that our oh, Spanish is feminine mm -hmm. for table and Italian is masculine, that point then will, it will like embed those two words in my mind forever. Right. Um, so, yeah, simultaneous language learning for me is, um, is something I always do, and for me it works. You know, and I thought I was, I mean, because, you know, people say, well, you should learn one language at a time. And I, I mean, for me, I'm used to being able to do like three or four things at one time. Yeah. I mean, because otherwise it's like I get bored if I don't. Yeah. Like, I would take like seven classes in one semester. And that would be a full load for me. And people are like, how can you do it? I was like, because if I don't, I'm going to be bored. Yeah. Otherwise. And, and, and I think most of the people that I know, too, who are very proficient in many languages, I don't, I, very few would actually sit there with one language and, and power through until they get to a point. Most of them jump from language to language. And they do it because they love it. Right. And I, I, mean, don't, like, I don't learn languages for the sake of learning a language. I learn it. This one, I'm solving puzzles too, because it allows me to act as human beings. Right. And they're I, the two core ingredients. It, you know, it's funny because I, I told someone, I was like, if I can cook a meal, if I can make borscht, which I learned how to make borscht and uh, Olivier salad, and I've made it for my friends. And every time I come over, can you make some borscht? Can you make some Olivier salad? Now, I mean, the Russians, they only eat Olivier salad during New Year's. I right. make it every holiday. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and people love it. And I mean, my Russian friends are like, I'll take pictures and put it up on Facebook and what I cook. And they're like, dude, you're a good cook. And I was like, oh yeah. Like my goal for Italian is to make pascotis and cannolis from scratch. You right. know, use Italian recipes. And so I said, you know, for me, it's those little things that mean something. And I was like, I've always wanted to know Italian and French and Russian. And I'm becoming more East influenced as far as my languages. So now that I know I have 40% Bantu tribe in my bloodline from West Africa, I want to learn some Swahili. So I'm teaming up with Caddy Nadoi and I'm learning Swahili and I'm creating a, a language, um, conference online next year called Afrolingo Fest, where it's three days and you're going to have people from Asia, people from the Middle East and Africa, uh, African Americans and people from Latin America um, speak at this conference, you know, in regards to what they do with their languages and, and their careers and, and so forth, because I don't I don't see enough of that, I guess out there in regards to you know language learning conferences that's and, uh, that's awesome so and so her and i are teaming up to do that and 
I mean, I came up with the idea like two months ago because everyone's like, well, I don't see enough minorities. And I said, I don't either. And I'm sure that they're around, but they're not, they're not as popular or they're not as well known or, you know, they're just in hiding. Mm. <laughs> so, so I said, I want to see more Asians and I want to see more people from the Middle East and I want to see more Latin, you know, Latin people and more, more African-Americans and people from the black diasporas as a whole, you know, be out in the forefront in the language learning community because people, everybody speaks languages. It's just, you don't, you don't see anyone else out there that that's of minority, you know. No, that's right. And so like, I mean, yes, Moses is out there. I'm out there. You know, you have Tamara Marie, you have Shahida Foster, you have a few people, but you don't, you just don't, you don't see them unless you go on YouTube and you find people. And I've found a lot of people on YouTube and I'm and especially Twitter. I'm connecting with people uh, from different places and, you know, black people are moving to Japan and Asia and they're, you know, got businesses in Korea and all over the place. And I'm like, Ooh, I, I yeah, to I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get into Twitter more. I, I neglected my my Twitter for many many years. I've uh, and and now I'm actually running courses in Chinese social media for uh, for companies to do digital marketing because uh, I see it's a big hole where uh, a lot of um, companies outside of China have right. no idea about marketing to the Chinese audience, especially here. You know, if you want to get your, there's a lot of Chinese affluent mainland Chinese tourists coming out using a lot of money um and so yeah late, lately especially um i've been spending a lot of time in china and um the social media channels there are a totally different beast so right. um i've been focusing more on those but i think i'm gonna have to get back into some of my twitter and stuff like that too it sounds like there's a lot out there oh there are i i i'm starting to do more twitter i did have i do have an instagram account but I'm not, I'm less visual and more audio and more less right as opposed to, okay, I need to <laughs> take pictures of everything that I'm doing. Or, I mean, I like to make videos and like post them, but mm. aside from that, like I'm not the best editor, so I just don't edit right. at all. But I know blind people that can, you know, run circles around editing audio and all that type of stuff, you know. Right. Hey, Chanel, my, my, I just got a dit dit. My battery's going to die shortly. Thank you. So, <laughs> just, just I, I didn't want my voice to cut off halfway uh, through something. Uh, um, okay. Gindi Tidaruta con Sture. Gindi Tidaruta con Sture. It's, uh, Nice, nice to uh, to know you, to meet you, and uh, thank you for letting me be part of the podcast today. Oh, I think I said that right. I hope so. Anyway. Say, say it again. My, my my headphones just dropped out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Um, yeah, let me know when it's going to be out there. Um, okay, I probably will probably put this out tomorrow. Okay. Uh, so usually, yeah. do as I upload it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll put it out because I have two, I have three more interviews this week. I, I actually am interviewing um, Steve Kaufman tomorrow and a friend of mine from Nigeria and then Amber okay. Gonzalez of Ambi TV off of YouTube, so. Okay, cool. Yeah. So let, let, let me know, feel free to link through to, to my stuff and I'll help push it out from this end too. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, Cheryl. I'm gonna go to bed now. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.